finishing up Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Um, the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about an account where Mary and Joseph are at the temple. They have brought Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And God had said that every firstborn male that opens the womb belonged to him. And you needed to uh, redeem that son, and you needed to bring a sacrifice to the temple to redeem him. And so Mary and Joseph had come to the temple, and they had brought with them a pair of doves. Now, if you were well-to-do, you could bring a bull for that sacrifice. If you were kind of, you know, middle income, you could bring a lamb. But if you were poor, then God had made provision where you could bring doves. And Mary and Joseph hadn't gotten the gold, frankincense, and myrrh yet. So they were quite poor, so they brought some doves for the sacrifice. And we're told in chapter 2 that there was a man there, an old man at the Temple Mount, by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is called a righteous and devout man, and he spent a lot of time around the temple. And God had told Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Lord's anointed, until he saw the Messiah. That's a pretty cool promise. You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And so one day the Spirit leads Simeon up to the temple and over to this young couple. He sees this young couple there with the baby and they're dedicating him. He walks over. This would have been really strange for Mary and Joseph. And he walks up and says, you know, can I, can I hold the baby? And this is what Simeon says in verse 29. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus was that light that was revealed. And last week, we talked about Matthew's reference to Jesus being the light. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, where he had prophesied that it was going to be a light that would dawn upon the Gentiles that lived in Galilee. The Gentiles there. It was a region that was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. It was really known as a, a place of darkness and death. But where the country was the darkest, that's where the light chose to shine. That's where Jesus chose to start his ministry. He goes down uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he finds two pairs of brothers. He finds Andrew and Simon, which is Peter, and then James and John. And he calls out to them, and he simply says, follow me. Now, when I read this story... I always thought it was kind of strange that he just walks by, says, follow me, and they just leave everything and go after him. But Andrew and John, two of the brothers, one of each, were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And they were following him, and they had heard of Jesus. They had seen Jesus. John the Baptist was talking about his cousin. And so when he walked along the shore and said, follow me, they immediately left everything. Uh, most of the people that were disciples, like disciples of John, they had full-time jobs. Uh, these guys were still fishing to make a living. And that's what they were doing at the time that Jesus walked by. And his invitation, his call to them was, now I want you to be full-time students. I want you to leave everything, everything you know, everything, all the provision that you think you have, and follow me. Which would have been kind of a scary proposition, honestly, because Jesus was not independently wealthy. So how are we going to make ends meet? How are we going to be provided for if we follow this traveling rabbi? But it was a, a command. Uh, he didn't ask them to take a class on evangelism. 
Uh, He didn't tell them to read a book first and then they could come follow him. He just said simply, follow me. And when you hang out with me, when you watch the way I do life, the way I honor the Lord, the way I preach the gospel, then inevitably you're going to become like him. And for us as well, there are lots of books, there are lots of resources, there's lots of people talking about how to do this Christian life, how to be more like Jesus. But if we simply hang out with him, if we hang out in his word, if we speak with him, then inevitably we will start to become like him. Um, Three of these guys, Peter, James, and John, they were the inner circle. They were Jesus's inner circle, these three guys. And we read about a story where Jesus sends out 72 guys. So there was this big group of people, 72 guys that Jesus sends out. And then there were the 12 that we know about. And then there were this inner three, uh, Peter and James and John. Now, why not Andrew? That's the question I ask. Like, he was there at the beginning too. Why not Andrew? Well, we don't really know why Andrew wasn't part of the inner circle. We don't know why it was three and not four. But what I would point out is that God chose Andrew to bring in Peter. God chose Andrew to bring in Peter. Andrew believed first. He was following John the Baptist. He believed first. He went and got Simon, his brother, and said, we found the Messiah. You got to come see this. And so he brought him to Jesus. And here's my point. Even though Peter was the leader of the church, even though he was the one that most people talk about, he needed his brother, Andrew. And don't think that just because you can't be a Peter, that you can't have a huge impact on the kingdom. We can't all be Peters, but we can all be Andrews. We can all be people that bring others to Jesus. He wants to use us whether we're a Peter or an Andrew. And we read that, we read Jesus coming along and asking them to follow him, and it really doesn't seem like that big of a deal because we've heard about it so often. But it would have been hugely significant, and we need to catch the significance of this, because in that day, if you wanted to continue your religious studies, if you wanted to continue to learn the Torah and follow rabbis, the students actually picked the teacher they would find a rabbi that they kind of, you know, closely associated with, respected, wanted to learn more from, and they would pick the rabbi. The rabbis didn't pick the students. Only radical rabbis went out and recruited people to follow them. And I think Jesus fits that, you know, fits that mold of a radical rabbi, right? And so he goes and recruits these guys, and he tells them later, he's like, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And that's something I said, you know, that should be one of the best thoughts that floats through our head on a consistent basis that we did not necessarily choose him. He chose us. He chose us. You might say, but Nathan, I thought that we had to make a choice. You say, if he chose us, don't we have to make a choice? Yes. Um, Jesus put out the call, but they had to heed the call. He gave the invitation, but they had to respond. They had to get up and follow him. So some might say, well, Jesus knew they were going to say yes. Right? Like he knew it. He put out the invitation. They had to respond, but he knew that they were going to say yes. That's right. <laughs> so do we have free will or is it all predestined? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. He sent the invitation, but we have to respond. And Paul tells us that even the faith that we have to believe is a gift from God. Even the, even the faith that we have, it's been given to us because that way we can't boast. We can't boast. He chose us. It's a mystery. 
But once you've responded to that call, once you've received the gift of faith and you follow after him, he has work for you to do. He calls these guys into relationship, and then he's going to teach them how they're going to be saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. And the most basic part of that is simply being a light, being a light in the darkness. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to teach you guys how to be a light in the darkness. You're going to be people that are fishers of men that are going to bring people out of the darkness. And that was what Jesus was going to train his recruits to do. So we're going to finish up chapter four today, and we're going to take a peek, just a peek at chapter five before we get into that. We're going to start in verse 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." Now, all four gospel writers are telling everyone that Jesus was more than just a man. He was more than a man. Yes, he went around preaching and teaching. Lots of people went around teaching and preaching. But he also healed. And nobody else was going around healing. That was unique. People were amazed at his words, at the things that he spoke. They said he spoke with authority, but he also backed up his words with his works the things that he did. And that's why we have the miracles recorded. Uh, But they're just a fraction of what he did. We're only given 37 miracles in the Gospels that Jesus did. And that's just a sliver of what he did. John writes in his Gospel, Jesus also did many other things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world itself would not have room for the books that would be written. That's pretty incredible. We get 37. John says he did so many things, the books wouldn't even contain him all the things that he had done. Last week I'd said that the beginning of Jesus' ministry was at the right time, and it was at the right place, and he had the right message. And we're going to see today that he had the right plan as well. So Jesus takes his disciples and he starts teaching in the synagogues. The synagogues, basically the church, right? This was the center of Jewish life. It revolved around the synagogues. And the worst thing that could happen to you if you were a Jewish male would be to get banned from the synagogue. Like that was a pretty big deal to get thrown out of the church. Jesus' ministry was to the Jewish people uh, specifically, and then obviously it, it extended to us, but to start it out there. And so that's why he starts out teaching in the synagogues. And a traveling rabbi would have been welcomed in. And when he showed up at a synagogue, he would have been welcomed in and given, given a chance to teach, to read from the scroll, to give his commentary on what he was reading. And so they invited him up. He goes to his hometown. That's a good place to start church in your hometown. Uh, ministry starts at home, right? That's what they say. So he goes to his hometown. He goes into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll, scroll of Isaiah. And he scrolls down, scrolls down to the place where his, where his mission statement is found. He rolls it out and he finds the text in Isaiah 61, describes his ministry. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's proclaiming and he's liberating and he's healing. 
And the men there who was sitting there listening to Jesus read, they would have been like, oh yeah, I know this part. This is the part in Isaiah where he talks about the Messiah. And back then when a teacher would teach, they would read, they would stand and they would read it, and then they would sit down and they would teach. So if you were sitting, you were teaching. If you were standing, you were preaching. So he sits down and they're listening to his commentary on this portion of scripture. And he says, today, this portion of scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everybody's looking at Jesus and they look at each other. They're like, wait a minute. Did he just, did he just, like, this is talking about the Messiah. Did he just call himself the Messiah? And it says that they grabbed him, they ran out of the synagogue, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Welcome home. That's what he got when he went into his home synagogue. He said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. But the common man, this really was the center of the community. The worst thing that could happen was to get kicked out. Jesus was carried out and then almost thrown out. And if you became a Christian you were tossed out of the synagogue. You were not allowed in if you became a Christian. Um, There are places all over the world today, people are accepting Christ and they are being cut off from their families, from their communities, all for the sake of the gospel. And I would say that we are approaching a time in the not too distant future where we are going to have to make a choice because the choice will cost us, may cost us materially, may cost us relationally. But I would encourage all of us to to square that in our minds ahead of time before it comes along, that we are going to stand for the truth, that we are going to stand for Jesus no matter what it might cost us personally or materially. Later, his disciples, uh, Jesus told them, he said, the student is not above his teacher. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. And they got persecuted because they stood up for the truth. They were preaching the good news. They were being honest with people. You're a sinner. You need a savior, and we know that savior's name is Jesus. And if we stop short of that, if we do not do that, we are not preaching the truth. We got to be bold in our faith. We we really have to pray for divine appointments that we will that God will bring people in our path that we can speak to with boldness. Um, you know, my prayer for this year is that I would see people come to Christ, that we would see people come to Jesus. It's great to have people come to church. I love you guys, and I love people coming to church and being able to do this. I want to see some new people come to Jesus. I want that to be part of my story. I want it to be part of your story. I want it to be a testimony of what's going on right now. So we went around teaching and preaching. Teaching is kind of what we do here. It's expounding on, it's explaining truth. We walk by, you know, through the scriptures verse by verse, and you kind of dig into it and pull it apart so we can understand it better. Teaching really is for the body, and preaching is proclaiming truth. Proclaiming is out there telling people what the truth is. And I read something uh, this week that said, you know, that which is, let me see, I want to make sure I say it right. right. Um, that which is proclaimed needs to be explained, and that which is explained needs to be proclaimed. So what's explained in here needs to be proclaimed out there, And the things we proclaim out there, we need to explain to them. So that's the difference between teaching and preaching, but that's what Jesus was doing. He was teaching in the synagogues, but he was also going around preaching the good news of the gospel. This is the reason why we teach in here and we go out there and shine our lights in a dark world. Uh, In Acts 1, it tells us that Jesus was teaching and preaching right up into the time that he was taken back up into heaven, that he was 
working right up into the end. And that's what we're to be doing too. He never stopped and we're not to stop. There's no retirement plan in the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, there's no retirement plan. (laughs) That should make you feel good. And then when he ascended into heaven, he literally passed the baton. He handed it off to his disciples and said, now you go teach and preach. Now this is your job. This is what you are to do. You watched me. You followed me. So I call this following. We are to follow him. And he's showing us how we're to follow him, teaching and preaching. Jesus stuck with the truth, and that's what his disciples did as well. Uh, Jesus didn't get sidetracked by political or social issues of the day. Uh, Yes, he was for justice. Yes, he was for mercy. And that's our job as the church to go do that. But he didn't get caught up in that. His message never changed. Justice and mercy are the word of the body. But it's, it's not the point of us getting together on Sundays to do this, what we do in teaching. Um, I was talking with a woman last week, and she said that her and her husband attended like the biggest church in Kansas City. It's huge. And they loved it until... She said that they, they left, her and her husband left, because the pastor's sermons just got real political, real political, overtly so, and then, you know, to the point where she said, if you didn't agree with what he was preaching, he made you feel like you were in sin, basically. And I think it was a fairly progressive church, and so they said, no, thank you, and left, and they were looking for a church home. I invited her to ours, but she was in Olathe. I think that would be a long, a long jaunt for her. <laughs> Our focus doesn't need to be on politics. It needs to be on Jesus. And Jesus focused his teachings on the Father and on the kingdom. Uh, John was preaching on repentance. John was preaching that they needed to confess. They needed to baptize, you know, be baptized. And he was pointing to the promise. His was the bad news that was pointing towards the good news. Jesus had the good news. John was preaching, you know, you need to get saved. Judgment is coming. And Jesus came with the good news of the kingdom. He was to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, healing to those who were sick and to free those who were in bondage. This was his message to the people. But the religious people of the day couldn't handle it. They couldn't take it because he was stealing the spotlight. He wasn't keeping the rules the way that they thought they needed to be kept. He wasn't keeping man's rules. And he was doing things that they couldn't do. He was healing people. They couldn't do that. People wanted to follow Jesus. He was also claiming to be the Messiah, which was problematic for them. Um, His ministry, as it was resisted more and more by the religious people of that day, his words to them got even more stern and even more strict. Um, They became more harsh because they were rejecting him as the Messiah. And Jesus has good news for those who are searching for those who know that they're sinners in need of a savior. But for those who reject him, he does have some very harsh words. So he came teaching and preaching. And thirdly, he came healing. This was another sign of his kingship of his divinity. Remember his cousin, John the Baptist had been arrested. Now John had been arrested before. So no big deal. This didn't bother him at all that he got arrested. But as time went on, he began to despair. He began to kind of wonder, is all of this right? Like, my cousin is the Messiah. I believe that, but I'm starting to wonder because time is going on and nothing's happening. You know, James writes that Elijah was human just like us. And when I read this about John the Baptist, who Jesus goes on to say was the greatest born of women, 
And he talks about how awesome John is, but John was also human. He was human. We're human. The Holy Spirit worked through John. The Holy Spirit can work through us, but we're also human. And, you know, John began to despair a little bit. But I can, I can kind of, uh, Think what he might have been going through, what might have been going through his head that, you know, my, my, you know, cousin is the Messiah. The kingdom is here. He's going to save me. No big deal. I'll be out of here soon. But as he starts to despair, he sends his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? That's the question that he sends. It's had to be difficult for Jesus to hear. Um, Jesus was not unfeeling. They said he was a man who was acquainted with grief. Um, And when he heard that from John, it had to kind of grieve him a bit. It had to hurt his heart. But listen to his response to his disciples. Matthew 11, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Leopards are, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying, I am the one. Here's the proof, John. People are being healed all over the place. Miracles are happening. But I'm not coming to save you. That's not part of God's plan. That, that makes me question, Right? That throws up a big question mark. How can this be? How can it not be part of God's plan to save his cousin John? It would have been easy. Look at all the miracles that are happening. It would have been nothing for Jesus to go in and free John. But it wasn't part of his plan. People were experiencing miracles. John wasn't going to experience the miracle that he wanted to see. And the topic of healing is always a controversial one. Um, There are some prominent pastors out there uh, who believe that the age of miracles has passed. That, you know, when Jesus was on the scene, miracles were happening all the time. But when he ascended, they started to kind of slow down with the apostles. And then when the apostles died, then they died out with them. And there hasn't been, you know, miracles in the way that it was happening in the early church, um, but that when the millennial kingdom is set up on the earth, that those you know, signs and wonders will start again. Now, some of them think that. I personally believe that miracles are happening today. They are happening today. God is intervening sovereignly in the world whenever he chooses. Um, and just because they're not happening in our backyard doesn't mean we throw it all out together because miracles are happening all over the world. You cannot deny that. Um, God still intervenes in this world. Uh, He can assert his sovereign will whenever he chooses. And that really is the key point, whenever he chooses. Not when we choose, not when we name it and claim it. So how do we receive physical healing? Um, Well, how did we receive our spiritual healing? We're told that we received our healing, our salvation by grace through faith. That's what it's written in in Ephesians. So how do we receive physical healing? By grace, through faith. It is a mercy that is granted. It's God's grace. We should pray in faith. We should boldly enter the throne room of grace. That's what it says. We have access to the Father. We can boldly enter the throne room of grace. It's our faith and God's grace. Uh, My kids can approach me boldly whenever they want. Uh, they can come in, they can make their requests. Uh, they don't always get what they want. They might even tell you they most of the time don't get what they want. Okay. But they can come to me anytime. Um, I 
have reasons. And sometimes I tell them those reasons. Sometimes I do not. But what happens when we don't get what we want? What happens when the healing doesn't come and we're tempted to fall into despair? Jesus didn't give the reason why he didn't go save John, but God had his reasons. Um, I don't have to explain myself to my kids. And honestly, God doesn't have to explain himself to us either. We have to have faith in our Father that he is the giver of all good things. And if our request isn't granted, if it doesn't come the way that we want it to, um, that that's just part of his divine plan. Okay? Um, we don't get everything we want. He is not our own personal divine genie. But that's the way he gets portrayed to the world sometimes. You know, if you get saved, your life will be better. It'll be smooth sailing. You'll get what you want. And prosperity, prosperity preachers will come under judgment because they are pointing people to a genie and not to a savior. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> It's Ben Franklin. It's not in the Bible. And notice the order, teaching, preaching, and healing. Uh, I believe that some ministries can get off base if they get these mixed up, if they get them turned around. It says he went teaching, and he went preaching, and he went healing. The first two need to be taking place. We need all of them together. Jesus did say that signs and wonders will follow those who believe. But how do people believe? They believe through the hearing of the word the Holy Spirit opening up their eyes. So they need to hear first so they can believe. I said it uh, a few weeks ago, but when Jesus was being tempted by Satan and he tried to get him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, he was trying to tempt God into, you know, using his power to save his son because Jesus would do something that was outside of the Father's will. It also would have been an extraordinary sign to all the people there that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But that wasn't part of God's plan. He was tempting Jesus to try to do that because miracles don't necessarily produce converts. They really produce an appetite to see more miracles. Uh, that's generally what it produces. When the Pharisees were talking to Jesus and they said, perform some sign for us so that we know that you're the Messiah, Jesus said, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign I'm going to give you is that I'm going to raise from the dead. That's the sign that I'm going to give you. Then you'll believe that I'm the Messiah. And they still didn't even believe. They said, if I show you a miracle, you're not going to believe. You're just going to want to see another one. The only thing that produces converts is the gospel message. It says that they brought him all the sick, those affected with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. He healed all of them. He had power and dominion over all of them. People are sick for all kinds of reasons. Uh, some people are sick because of foolish habits, uh, not things that are sinful, but just things that they prefer that aren't good for them, and they end up being sick. Uh, others are sick as a consequence of sin. When we get to uh, Matthew 9 here in just a few short weeks, um, we have this account that comes directly before Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple. It's interesting. Chapter 1, verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, sorry. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is a really interesting passage of Scripture because Jesus just returned to his hometown. Religious people did not like him there. Last time he was there, they tried to kill him. It wasn't popular. But Jesus is teaching in a house when the ceiling starts to disappear. Imagine how surprised the owners of the house must have been, not to mention everybody else was there. But they couldn't get through the crowd, so they went up to the ceiling and started removing part of the ceiling so they could lower their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. Now, that seems a little bit strange. Jesus, first thing he says to him, this paralytic can't walk, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was that guy, I would have been like, forgiveness is nice, right? But I came here to be healed. Like, I want to walk again. That's the reason why I'm here. But Jesus put his finger on the very thing that that guy needed most of all, and that was forgiveness. Sometimes we think physical health is the most important thing, but spiritual health supersedes our physical health. That's our greatest need, to be cleansed from sin. But I can't help but wonder if this man was paralyzed because of some actual sin. Maybe it was a disease that he contracted, or perhaps it was an injury that he had occurred. But I have to wonder that because, you know, although we're not told that, Jesus doesn't normally say this to people when he heals them. He doesn't normally say your sins are forgiven beforehand, at least not that we're reading in other places. But Jesus knew this man's need. He tells him his sins are forgiven. And, of course, the religious guys freak out again because he's claiming to be the Messiah. He is forgiving sins. But Jesus healed him spiritually, and then he healed him physically. He heals both ways. God also uses affliction. He uses discipline to humble his people, to bring them to him. This man was paralyzed, and that brought him to Jesus. Uh, it's not a popular stance because you've heard you know, pastors say from time to time, at least I have, that it's not God's will for you to be sick, or it's not God's will for you to be in this condition. Uh, but that's not what we see in Scripture. Um, it's really hard for Christians to believe that because, um, you know, it's hard to think Jesus would use a sickness to benefit them or to benefit other people. But then what do we do with the story of Job? Somebody who was called a righteous man and thought he was suffering for no reason. I preached a few weeks ago on why does God allow evil to exist? God didn't create evil but he allows it to exist. And the short answer is he used it to accomplish his purposes. He uses it to accomplish his purposes. Uh, That's the reason why he allows it. And in Job's case, it was to prove to Satan that there are men on this earth who choose God because of who he is, and they reject sin even though they have a sin nature. The devil thought Job that he would, the devil thought that Job was only devout because God would bless him. He had blessed him with all kinds of stuff. And Satan said, well, of course, of course he serves you. Look at what you've given him. And yet Job ends up saying, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And each of us, each of us as Jesus followers, if we're following him, needs to get to that, needs to get to that point that Lord, I want to be healed but I want your will more than I want my will done in my life, and I will praise you no matter what. 
There's another place in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is writing to the church and he heard some reports that some of the people in the church were profaning the Lord's Supper, communion. And they were not eating it in a worthy manner. Um, what was happening in the churches, when they were coming together and they were passing out communion, some people were digging in and they were taking a whole bunch for themselves. And by the time the plates got around, some people got nothing. So some people were going home hungry while other people were, you know, leaving drunk because they were drinking so much wine. And Paul says, listen, don't you guys have food at home? Like if you're hungry, eat first, then come to church when you take communion. Like, that makes sense. But because they were taking it in an unworthy manner, some of them had become sick. This is what Paul writes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There were some who were sick and some that have died because they were not bringing worth and respecting the Lord's table. And, you know, Paul's writing them saying, listen, this is supposed to drive you towards Jesus. This is in remembrance and honor of Jesus. This is not a time to feed your flesh. Scripture does make it clear that all suffering and all disease are the result of living in a fallen world. It's the result of sin being present in our world, but God can use it for his purposes. Uh, When Jesus was on the scene, though, when the kingdom had come, healing was available to anyone and everyone. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit to heal, and we only got a small sample of that. I'm excited to find out all of the things that he did while he was here walking around on the earth. He healed people who were sick physically, and he also healed people who were sick spiritually. Uh, He cast demons out of people. We read that throughout the scriptures, that even the demons, the spirits were subject to him. Uh, Demonic oppression is a real thing. It really happens. There are demons assigned to all of us to torment us, to attack us, to tempt us, to try to make us fall. There are spirits of fear. Spirits of depression, spirits of anxiety, and all of those things we know manifest themselves physically in our bodies. Now, not every ache and pain is caused by the devil, but we know that there are spiritual forces that are coming against us every single day. That's the reason why Paul writes that we need to put on the full armor of God every single day. We need to take up the shield of faith. We need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need the shoes of peace, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, and we need to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We need to have that Word hidden in our hearts. We need to know it if we're going to use it, if we're going to wield the sword. We can fight back against the demonic forces, and believers can do that for others as well. So Jesus healed physically, he healed spiritually, he also healed mentally, people who were not in their right minds, people who were paralytic, people who were um, epileptic. Anything that came his way, he had lordship over. It was just more proof of his divinity um, and the kingdom miracles that were happening and are continuing to happen. In Isaiah twenty nine eighteen, it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see when God's kingdom is here on earth. The theologian B.B. Warfield said this about Jesus. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. 
The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of his glory, which he brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of the miracles which he wrought may be easily underrated. One touch of the hem of his garden garment that he wore could heal whole countries of their pain. One touch of his hand could restore life. God does heal in his sovereignty. It's his grace that we can't explain and don't deserve. Um, there are no promises that we are going to be healed in the here and now. Although he does, we will be healed one day. And miracles now, as they were back then, are meant to point others and point us towards Jesus and an eventual kingdom here on earth. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. We are just going to take a peek here at chapter 5 as we are going to get into one of the most significant portions of scripture in the whole Bible. And that is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is the King's Speech. Um, If you've seen that movie, The King's Speech, it's a really good movie. Um, This is going to be The King's Speech. These three chapters of Jesus addressing his disciples, addressing the crowds, and delivering to them the key points of the kingdom. Um, These were going to be revolutionary truths to the minds of these people that would have been hearing them. And they continue to, you know, explode in the minds of people that are reading them today over 2,000 years later. This is what the kingdom looks like, and this is what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. So what Jesus is going to be talking about in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So what I'd like to do as we wrap up here today is just kind of set the stage, uh, if you will, so that we can jump right in to the Beatitudes next week. The last message of the Old Testament was, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So, Here's Jesus, he comes along in stark contrast to this warning of a curse, talking about blessings. The Old Testament ends with a curse, but the New Testament starts with the promise of a blessing. Um, There's Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where the law came down. In the New Testament, we have Mount Zion, which is characterized by his grace and his salvation and his healing. The Old Testament, we talked about this, it demonstrates man's need for a savior. The Old Testament was a mirror, the mirror that gets held up. It's like we look in the mirror every morning and we know there has to be a change. We need to change something before we head out. That is what the Old Testament did. And it points us to Jesus. And Jesus comes with the offer of salvation. Uh, His sermon really clarifies the need for a Savior. The reason for the curse and shows us that our righteousness can survive no scrutiny with God. It cannot survive before the scrutiny of God. And his message offers blessings um, and the Lord offers them freely. If we come to the king on his terms, then we have a blessing instead of a curse as we receive his righteousness. The main theme of the Sermon on the Mount um, is that the main work of the king are most importantly, first and foremost, not external, but more spiritual and moral than physical and political. They are more internal than external. They're more spiritual than, than physical In the King's speech, we find no politics. We don't find any social reforms. Uh, Jesus' concern is for who men are because that affects what men do. The world says to train yourself mentally, train yourself physically so you can be successful, so that you can, you know, fulfill your, you know, destiny, so you can achieve as much as possible. But in the Lord's upside-down kingdom, those who are the greatest are those who are the most humble The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Real quick, here's five reasons why the Sermon on the Mount is important. 
First, it shows the absolute necessity of a new birth. A new birth is needed. The standards that Jesus is about to lay out are impossibly high to meet in our own power. Only those who are in Christ can fulfill them because Jesus fulfilled them. It's not just about doing right, it's about being right. Second, it intends to drive the listener to Jesus as man's only help for salvation. Um, If we cannot do it in the natural, then we need a supernatural power to help us out. And a proper response to the Sermon on the Mount is to drive us to Jesus. Uh, Third, it gives us God's pattern for happiness and true success in life, um, the way that God designed us to be. Uh, We find our way of joy and peace and contentment in the Sermon on the Mount. Fourth, um, you know, the power of a changed life. The greatest testimony that any, anyone has is the power of a transformed life. Um, in it, we see the power of a transformed life um, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out and a life of obedience to the principles in the Sermon on the Mount is our greatest tool for evangelism. Honestly, when people watch you and me and they see our lives and they see that something is different and they want to know more. Why are you different? Why um, do you not live the way the world does? Why aren't you anxious? Why aren't you worried about everything that's going on? Fifth, the Christian life that's obedient to the truths of the sermon is the only life that's pleasing to God. Um, That is our highest reason for living a life of godliness because it pleases the Lord. Um, Jesus said, he said, if you are my disciples, then you will follow my teachings. You'll do what you say. If you do what I say, then you will be my disciples. That's how I'll know that you love me in the way that you live. So Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is expressing his concern for the multitudes. He had great compassion for people. Um, The people that were coming to him were distressed. They were downcast. They were sick. They were hungry. Um, They were people who were both poor and rich. Uh, They were politically oppressed and those who were powerful. Uh, the ones that were religiously insignificant and the influential. Uh, they were intellectually ignorant and those who were well-educated. Uh, Jesus had compassion on all of them. Jesus attracted all men to himself because he had compassion on all of them. He loved all of them. He spoke the truth to all of them. And in Matthew 9, it tells us that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, that's a great visual when we, you know, picture all of these crowds following Jesus like a sheep. Um, and he was the good shepherd on Thursday night. We started our home group. We started our first home group and we are going through Psalm 23 that talks about how Jesus is the good shepherd. The very, and we just talked about the very first line, which is the Lord is my shepherd, uh, written by David who was a shepherd, but he's writing from the perspective of a sheep. The Lord is the one who guides me, the one who provides for me. And we see all of these instances where the crowds are following Jesus, and it's easy to see why we're called sheep and why we need a shepherd. Because of his compassion as a shepherd, he begins to teach them. Uh, There was a study done uh, in Colorado with 3,000 high school seniors, and they were asked about what what makes up a good teacher? Who were your best teachers, and what were the qualities that made that? And this composite was, uh, was drawn. The ideal teacher is genuinely concerned and interested in the students as individuals. Uh, number two, the teacher requires the students to work. 
Number three is impartial in dealing with students. And number four is obviously enthusiastic about teaching. Uh, These are the things that made up a good teacher. Jesus, of course, embodies all of these things. His concern and interest for people is what drove him to the cross. Uh, He demonstrates in this sermon how incredibly short we fall in our own efforts, in our own efforts to be righteous, uh, pointing us to our need for a Savior. Um, People were being hammered all the time with the law, how to keep the rules if you wanted to be saved. Jesus said, I'm the only one that can keep the rules. You need to put your faith in me. You need to be in me. He was impartial. Uh, Jesus was ministering to poor Gentiles and to rich young rulers. Uh, He was, you know, talking and ministering to people in all classes of society. He was enthusiastic. The people said, nobody teaches like this guy. We haven't heard anybody talk like this guy with authority. Jesus was enthusiastic about teaching the people. People were blown away by his words that had impact on their life. And we're going to have the worship team come back up. I read this story. I was giving a couple of examples last week about D.L. Moody, and I found another one this week. I just keep running into D.L. Moody. Um, he tells the story of his conversion in this way. He said, when I was in Boston, I used to attend a Sunday school class. And one day, I, re- I recollect my teacher came around behind the counter of the shop that I was at work in, and he put his hand upon my shoulder and talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not felt that I had a soul till then. I said to myself, this is a very strange thing. Here's a man who never saw me till lately, and he's weeping over my sins, and I never shed a tear about them. I never shed a tear about my sins, but here's a guy who's weeping over my sins. But I understand it now, and I know what it is to have a passion for men's souls and weep over their sins. I don't remember what he said, but I can still feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder that night. The concern and the tears of a godly teacher resulted in the conversion of a man who saw millions, millions and millions of souls saved in his evangelistic campaigns. That's what happened when a teacher showed compassion and got a hold of D.L. Moody and the Lord got a hold of him. And if we want to be those who are following in the footsteps of Jesus, we need to be those who are teaching those that are under our influence, teaching at home, our friends, preaching, letting our light shine out in a dark world, those that are bringing healing to those who need it, whether it be physical, whether it be spiritual or mental, we still have a God who heals. We still have a God who, you know, intervenes in history, who still proves his incredible kingship and his power over death, hell, and the grave. And I just would encourage you this week uh, to follow even closer, uh, to look for opportunities to teach, to look for opportunities to preach and, you know, to to speak the gospel to people, those divine appointments, um, and to reach out to have faith to believe for yourself, faith to believe for others. It says that when they lowered the man down, the paralytic in front of Jesus, he saw their faith and he healed him. So sometimes our faith seems small, but... Others can have faith. and God can see their faith and heal. And if the healing that we're asking for doesn't come, we don't fall into despair. We keep our faith in the one um, that has provided what is most important to us, and that is the spiritual healing, the deliverance that we need. And we say, you know what? Though he slay me, still I will praise him. Even if I don't get 
what I want. If that's not part of his divine plan, I will still praise him because of what he's done for me. Amen.